Formula One has been the world's premier racing league for more than half a century, and the man most synonymous with the sport is British billionaire Bernie Ecclestone. One marketing exec said, Bernie is a democratic dictator. Must be a close friend. Emerging from humble beginnings, Ecclestone's unmatched work ethic and fierce negotiating tactics gained him both worldwide notoriety and incredible wealth. He talked to us about everything from President Trump. I'm a big Trump supporter, and I think people that are knocking him, they should leave him alone and let him get on with it. To his ouster as CEO of Formula One. I understand that it's been hard for you, no longer running Formula One. That day and maybe for a month afterwards, I thought, what the hell? All that and more right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. The uh, first house you lived in uh, apparently didn't have electricity, uh, didn't have an indoor bathroom. Um, describe uh, what your first home was like when you were growing up. Well, it wasn't any... <clears throat> I was born in the country and lived with my grandmother early on. My parents, my grandmother's house. Had a, like a small farm. Then we moved to another place where, more or less what you said, it was a big village, there was eight houses, as you say. No indoor toilets and things. And I, think, I don't remember whether we had electricity or not. Certainly we didn't in my grandmother's house, but maybe later on we did. I think it was 1936, your family moves to a home in Bomb Alley on the outskirts of uh, London. How concerned were you guys at that time about the potential of an air raid? Quite excited about the whole thing, it was all different. And when the war was on, because of the bombing and where we lived, you know, every night there was air raids and things. So we lived in an air raid shelter. So. In, in your garden, right? You had a. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, so, like everyone did those things. Was it scary? Well, probably not for me. Probably for my parents were a bit more concerned because they understood. But I suppose me, as a kid, it was just very exciting. In the morning, we used to go and pick up the bits of the bombs and things. So it was. You know, your dad, um, at least for part of your childhood, was a fisherman. Um, I understand uh, it was your mom, um, in terms of your parents, that would kind of manage the uh, family money. What do you think uh, your frugal upbringing taught you uh, about uh, money and savings as you grew up? I think basically if you want to get something, you better go out on your own and get it rather than inherit money. I mean, I feel sorry for my kids. You know, they're lucky enough they, although both the girls really and truly now are running reasonably good businesses, so they are getting on with things. What makes you feel sorry for them? Well, the fact that they didn't have to start early days in the same way. Better they had it done. What led you to selling uh, cakes and buns in school when you were younger? Well, <clears throat> where I lived, and I used to go to a polytechnic, far, closer to London, and I used to go up by train, and very early, go to a shop because everything was rationed, and buy all the cakes and buns I could at the shop in a suitcase take them into the school in the break period, sell them. Just trying to make kind of an extra buck? 
Well, I never had any bucks in the first place to make extra, so it was to make money. Got it. I think you were 15, 16 years old when you drop out of school, and the, the deal with your dad was that you would take a job in chemistry. Um, what were you doing? Well, I was working in a laboratory in a gas company. And what was I doing? All the things I shouldn't have been doing at the gas company. So I was still doing deals and buying and selling motorcycles or whatever. So explain the moonlighting uh, you were doing and the work you were doing to build this motorcycle business while no, you were I also was, working was at just, the gas company. You know, anything I could see that could make a few dollars. You know, early, much earlier than that when there wasn't. I used to buy and sell fountain pens and cameras, things that nobody could get. I used to buy second-hand ones in a particular place in London where people sort of did these sort of business deals. What about the motorcycles, though, interested you? Well, I suppose being a kid is what, you know, it's the sort of thing that interests kids. By the time you turned uh, 21, you were, you know, having this motorcycle business. How well were you doing financially by then? Pretty good. At the time I was, well, I think 22 or something, I had quite a large motorcycle business. What do you think allowed you to grow it so quickly? I think I just had the courage to get on with it, on the necessity as well. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to build the business. When I left the gas company, if you like, I went to work for somebody in a motorcycle dealer's. And I used to sort of be doing all sorts of deals with the owner. It was happy for me to do business with him, although I worked for him. And in the end, I bought his company and started on my own. There have been legendary stories of, yeah. of people that have uh, negotiated with yeah. you um, over the years. Why do you think you've had uh, so much success on the other end of the table. It's a case of, if you want to buy something, you've got to really make sure that people are happy to sell it to you, the price you want to pay. And if you want to sell something, the same thing happens. Someone said, uh, you can't let him get ahead of you in a negotiation. I did speak to a couple um, people in marketing who had negotiated deals with you who uh, mentioned they were on edge going into the meetings because, you know, they heard stories that you're, um, you know, just a tough negotiator. But I've read you making the comments before that um, you found your reputation as a, a tough negotiator almost worked to your disadvantage. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So? You move in as top gun, so people want to make sure you're not. So it's difficult. You know, they're always on edge a little bit. How true is it that if you found uh, maybe the other side starting to get the upper hand in the negotiation, um, there have been stories where you might spill coffee or drop a stack of papers uh, to create a diversion? No, I think, um, I, I mean, these stories sort of come up. I think the story you're talking about is when Max Mosley and myself, we were talking to the people those days in the FIA. And uh, then there was all the papers that the FIA had in us. 
And when the, uh, it was the president of the FIA left, he said, I'm going to go out of the room because he wanted to talk to somebody, get some information. And we sort of pushed all the papers on the floor, things like that. But it wasn't for any reason, it was just to cause a bit of disruption, really. I mean, what was the thinking behind it then? I'm mischievous. <laughs> so there was a little bit of uh, strategy, at least, um, you know, with it then. What do you think makes a good salesman? I think the most important thing is people have to be able to trust you. I think after a little while, if they feel they can trust you, this is why the Japanese, if they want to do business with you, like to meet first two or three times to get to know you. And then when they feel comfortable, it's much easier then. Um, you said, shake my hand, a deal is forever, get me to sign a contract, I'll find a way out of it. Um, no, I don't try to find a way out of it. Other people do, particularly people in do. America. I always feel there that the minute I've signed the contract, the document goes to the lawyer, say, how can we get out of this and make some money? And was there a point in time where you used to only do handshake deals and no contracts? Yeah, when I had a race, Brabham race team, which I had for 18 years, you can talk to the drivers, somebody like Nelson Pico, or even, even Nicky. Mm -hmm. And I never had a con and sponsors. I had a contract with um, Olivetti. And we went for a whole year and never signed the contract until the end of the day. He said, well, we better sign the contract now because we have to pay. And that's what happened. You said um, of all the things you could be remembered for, um, what would be most important to you would be as a man whose word was his bond. Why? Because I think that that's how people should be. If you say you're going to do something, you better make sure you do it. Why disagree with democracy? Because it's very difficult to get a, have a room with six people to try and make a decision. And it's going to take forever to get the decision made. And there's always people for all sorts of reasons that decide they're going to say no. If it goes wrong, they say, I told you so. So you have one guy who says, that's what we're going to do. And I hope we get it right. What about the potential downsides of that? I don't know what they are. As long as the guy's delivering good, when he's not, get rid of him. Just saying, I'm a big Trump supporter. And I think people that are knocking him and trying to say he's doing wrong thing. They should leave him alone and let him get on with it. I'm sure there's lots of things that he wants to do and people are stopping him doing them, which are probably good things. And probably one or two things he's trying to do or doing, which are probably maybe not so bright, but it'll sort itself out in the end, providing he's doing a lot more good than bad. He's all right. What do you like about Trump? He makes decisions which he can't always complete with the look of it. <laughs> but uh, they should let him, let him complete them. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you actually once um, had conversations with him back in the day about the possibility of working together on a Formula One race? Yeah. yeah. Um, what did you guys talk about? I spoke directly but with somebody else that was sort of trying to put things together with him. I mean, he wanted to be completely in charge, which is not the way we operate. You know, I like to feel I'm in charge. Right. 
Is that what led to it falling apart? I mean, he wanted uh, Trump everywhere. And I said to the guy, this nigga, I said, we better remind him because he hasn't asked for Trump to put on the toilet paper. <laughs> Everything else, he wants Trump in the, which is right. It's quite right what he wanted to do. Uh -huh. He was doing nothing wrong. You know Russian President yeah, Vladimir yeah. Putin. Yeah. Uh, you said he's a super guy. Yeah. You said every country could use a leader like that. Absolutely. And I think if you had your way, you'd love for him to run all of Europe. Yeah. Um, what do you like about him? He's the guy that says he's going to do something and gets on and does it. I believe it was 2009. You're in negotiations with a representative on Putin's side. Uh, to bring a Formula One race to uh, Russia, and you tell the negotiator what they're proposing is unacceptable. Um, what do you say? You know, it's very difficult for somebody that's trying to do business with someone that doesn't really know the business they're trying to do, or buy or sell or run. And that was the case. They just needed to be brought up to speed to know exactly what they were doing. And how do you go about doing that? Just try and be honest and open about things. They'd just done the Olympics. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so they'd been dealing with the Olympic people, which is not the easiest because there's quite a few of those people. It's not, it's not a dictatorship. It used to be with Mr. Trump. Now, again, you know, with, it's getting back a little bit like that. But as I say, you've got all different people that all want something. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult when they go into a city and I think on short notice, you end up flying to Russia. Putin was going to be meeting you. Describe what he's like. Oh, he's, he's a stand-on guy. He's a handshake guy. Do a deal with him, you know what's gonna happen. How did you become good friends with Nelson Mandela? I was dealing with things when there was all sorts of trouble in South Africa, and I was against exactly what was going on with the people there against the black people. And when he was in prison, when he came out of prison, I went to see him. And from then, I did whatever I could to help him. I supported some of his charities and his sports things. Um, when you first saw him, when he came out of prison, what did the two of you discuss? No, I was a bit surprised that his attitude still to white people. What were you surprised by? Well, he's just a charming, lovely guy. Is there anything interesting that uh, sticks out that the two of you spoke about over the years? There's one thing, I had lunch with him in his house and he had some sweet white wine. I'm not a wine drinker. And, um, and I said to him, how did you suddenly, you know, he said, this is the only wine I drink. I said, why, why is that? Why you? He said, well, when he was in prison, the governor of the prison, in his last six months when he was there, used to invite him to his house and they used to, and this is the wine they used to drink. So that's the only wine I drink. What do you think uh, led to him writing to the prime minister recommending you be knighted? Well, I suppose he thought that's maybe a good thing. Whether it's him or the others I know that have uh, similarly wrote to the 
prime ministers uh, over the years suggesting that. How does it make you feel? I think in years and years and years ago, people would go and capture a country or do something for England, come back, give the keys to the king or the queen or whoever, and say, this is what I've done. And they'd be knighted. So they did something super for England. Um, I didn't think I deserved anything at all. Like probably 90% of the people that are not given these honors. Anything I did, I did for myself, not for England. If England benefit, good. I didn't go out particularly to do that. So I think, I think that whole system is wrong. How would you like to see it changed? Well, I think if somebody actually dedicates themselves to do something for the country, and is proud to do something for the country. I think it's great they should be recognized for that. But if uh, they came to you uh, again and, you know, wanted to knight you, yeah. um, that's something that you would decline? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to go back, uh, you know, many years to your earlier days in Formula One and the transformative uh, Concord Agreement that really uh, propelled Formula One into mm -hmm. the massive success that it is today. Um, Predating that Concord Agreement, I mean, yeah, the, the teams would have to negotiate with each individual promoter. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you couldn't guarantee that all the teams were gonna race in every no. race. Absolutely. And, um, how much did that change? The Concord Agreement was a, a sort of peace treaty mm -hmm. with the FIA. Right. Where we agreed that our group, me if you like, would be looking after all commercial matters and the FIA would look after all the sporting matters. It started really because I bought the Brabham Company. Mm -hmm. um, and then they asked me, to, if I would sort of negotiate things, because nobody negotiated for the teams, they negotiated with the promoters directly, and the promoters took advantage if somebody needed the points, you know, as the, even Ferrari, to win the championship. They used to get less money to start the race and things like that. <clears throat> Which I thought, well, probably we can do better than that. You know, there was no, nobody cared, basically, that's the whole. I mean, what they wanted to do originally is to pay me a, a percentage to run things, which didn't make a lot of difference one way or the other, um, because it was never very clear. And then I got to the state, I said, listen, we ought to start doing things a little bit more serious. Let's form a company, all put money in the company. I'll run the company complete, if that's what you want, or somebody else can run it, if you like, and take 30% of profits at the end of them. Yeah. And they were, and people said, no, 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 you get on, you do what you like, we just want to race. You do the best for us and yourself. And that was it. And isn't that funny because, you know, in recent years, people were almost critical of you for that percentage yeah. that you were taking when um, in reality it was very, kind of started as a very casual conversation back in the day. Those were people that ran businesses and knew what they were doing. And they just was happy for that to happen because we made things happen, whereas they wasn't happening. Well, so it was good for everybody. And what did you start to make happen 
early on that you could begin to feel the momentum and traction. Well, the making score sure was all the teams, up. firstly, got paid. So when we agreed deals, it was to make sure that the promoters paid us and I paid the teams. And I think over the course of a decade, driver salaries go up five and six times what they were a decade earlier. Um, in what ways were you immediately seeing an improvement in your business? I mean, I think what was good was the fact that we sort of captured all the television. Because it, firstly, there was never, ever a set time for a race. They talk more or less start, I remember in Mexico one year, we started when people got there more or less. <laughs> which was crazy. So the first thing we've got to do is to make sure, which we did, races start on time, to the minute. So slowly we got a lot more, all the TV people worldwide on board with us. Before they used to be able to, if they wanted to broadcast the race, they would, if they didn't, they didn't. So I made them originate all the races and broadcast all the races. Why do you think Formula One's been unable to have success in the U.S. so far? I think our form is more or less like football. It, you know, it's... I think with most things in America, most American sports, they're longer, a lot of points. So if I go to see the, the Lakers playing, for example, and I can get up and walk away and come back, and it was 290 played, you know, 293, I come back and it's 491 playing 496. Right. So I can go and, you know, go out to lunch or something, come walk out <laughs> to dinner and come back. Whereas in Formula One, if you don't watch, you might miss the over, only overtaking, or in football, the only goal. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult. I think American viewers generally, from when they're children, grow up to have big breaks for commercial reasons. Mm -hmm. And that's what they, that's what it is. And you can't in, in Formula One. And I think the same thing, so forget television, when they go to a race, it's the same thing. You know, they need to sit and watch. No good getting up and go and have a drink or something, or a hot dog, gotta be there. The TV in America for us has been really bad. Even when I bought time on ABC, it was the same. We got messed around because they used to sell all the affiliates, used to sell commercials in all the different places. So it was always a bit of a confusion. So whereas the rest of the world, we get good television coverage. And the minute we could get that in the States, Formula One would work in America, for sure. Um, if you go back in time, when do you think Formula One had the most traction in the US? And what do you think's different now versus then? Well, we used to have um, one period, I think we had four races a year in the States. So I, I, I really don't know. I think the world has just grown and changed and maybe we've grown more outside of America. America used to be very important for us, even if we had less races. Mm -hmm. But now it's less important. That's why I moved really more to Asia, more places like this, where we are. What do you think the new owners 
will do to try and make America work? I think they'll try and get more races and a bit more publicity, I suppose. And what do you think it would mean for the sport if um, it really gained traction in the U.S. as well? I think it'd be super. So I wanted to go back to um, safety and the earlier days of uh, Formula One. Um, 1950 to 1977, there were 22 driver deaths. From 78 to 94, five driver deaths. And since 94, only one driver death. So obviously, safety's improved tremendously. Um, but I want to take you back to uh, a, a moment that I know affected you greatly, the 1970 Grand Prix, when a, a driver that was near and dear to your heart passed away tragically in an accident. Um, how did that affect you? Well, uh, with Joachim, we were good mates. So it's like if you, you're your best friend, suddenly something happens to you. If somebody dies because they're sick or something, there's nothing much you can do. But in this case, you know, I went just to go, went to the race with him, was with him before he got in the car, and then you suddenly he's dead. So it's a bit of a shock, obviously. How did it affect you? Well, I sort of walked right away from Formula One for a little bit. Driver safety. What were the challenges with improving it over the years? The funny thing is the people that never really complained about things were the drivers. This is, this is a job and it's dangerous and that's what I do. So it was always the other people like us and there was a, I thought we ought to do something. But the first thing we should do is get a doctor that travels with everyone. Mm -hmm knew everyone and knew what he was doing so that uh, when the accidents happened he could look after them. So we, I installed a guy to do that and he used to then go to the hospitals, be local, as close as we could um, and make sure that things were there ready for if these accidents happened and what equipment they wanted and whatever. And that we thought well, this is it's good but it's not perfect. So, so I said to Sid, well, let's try and build something at the circuits. So if and when these accidents happen, you know, we have enough people there that can attend to the people immediately, which is what we did. And it got better and better and better, you know, them too long to take people to a hospital, even if they come out of the little hospital at the circuit to the hospital by car. So we then had helicopters on standby doing that all the time. So just things improve, that's all. It's like anything in, in business or in anything. We started talking about these things with Mario Andretti. And Mario would come to me, he said, I don't care about the safety, but don't touch the money. <laughs> <laughs> Funny story regarding Andretti too. Uh, he came up to you uh, one time by a pool, right? Uh, he was offered some money to push you in the pool. Yeah. Uh, what happens? Now he said, you know, you, you can have to go in here. He said, because I had a watch on it. So I said, well, let's split it 50-50, come on. <laughs> so I went in. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so wanted to mention a few of the um, tough moments um, over your career, Formula One's evolution, and get you to recall 
the story and then how you were able to overcome it. Um, the first one being when Formula One lost tobacco advertising because of uh, the, the ban on yeah, tobacco yeah. advertising. Well, it wasn't good because they were big sponsors in Formula One. It was a bit of a shock, not just bad for me, but all the teams that got sponsorship. And they were the biggest sponsors in the sport. So yeah. when you learn that's going to happen, even though I think you're later able to work out a deal where it was a nine-year kind yeah. of withdrawal, um, but how were you able to, you know, get past that and have success? Well, because I think in the end, it was what you said. We just sort of phased it out, and people realized that. Uh, in the end, it would be a big battle to go ahead and try and stop it. When your longtime confidant and colleague Max Mosley mm -hmm. resigned, yeah, that was that was me being thoroughly third-rate because a lot of uh, sponsors and teams and whatever manufacturers said, "Got to get rid of Max because of all this nonsense," which was nobody's business. Anything, anything that was alleged he'd got up to was private not to do with anything else. And I'd said to Max, you know, you ought to stand down because it's damaging everybody. But afterwards I apologized to all the people in the FIA and everybody else because I felt really third rate about doing it. Why? Because he's a good mate. He's done an awful lot for Formula One, a lot for the sport, um, helped me a lot in different things. And he's a first class person. If you had to do it over again, uh, how would you have handled that differently? I would have shut my mouth, I suppose. Or just said the people that were campaigning against him to shut up and hope they did. I don't think they would have done. But I needn't have joined them. That also happened around the time of the financial crisis. So, you know, that happens. And then on top of that, it's 2008, 2009. Uh, the, the Great Recession, um, BMW, uh, Toyota, Honda, all, you know, shut down their teams. Um, take me back to that period and what you remember was going on then and how you were ultimately able to get through it. Well, uh, well you have to get through these things when they happen because there's not a big alternative. But I mean, when you talk about the people that withdrew did they withdraw because of these things? Or did they withdraw because they wasn't competitive and saw a good ex reason to escape? I don't know, and I've never asked. As head of the sport, um, you were in directly in charge of all new business across all Formula One revenue streams. Um, Formula One had no chief marketing officer, no communications head. How do you view delegation? I think delegation, I think, is if you're prepared to accept second best. And for you, that was what? Never a possibility? No, I'm a little bit hands-on, you know, day and night, so I like to know what's going on. I don't want any bad news being kept away. Good news is you don't need to know about it. Right. And some people would say, okay, well, I mean, maybe you view it as second best, but if you hire the right people and empower them, it gives you more staff to even accomplish more than 
you'd Probably otherwise right. be unable to may well be yours. right. I mean, our new shareholders mm -hmm. in the company, well, the new shareholders in the company, are taking that because they've been in different types of businesses, and probably they've achieved by doing this, and they're probably right. Maybe I should look back in two or three years and say, my God, I should have done that. Do, do you think they're right? Or I mean, I, the people that built our television, uh, I gave Eddie complete free hand mm -hmm. to do it. So I either say to somebody, you get on with it, and get on with it, and don't get involved, or I do, I do it myself. Um, so you sold TV rights, served on the sports governing body, handled sponsor deals. Uh, you, you know your company uh, would shift the ship the Formula One uh, equipment and the crew all around the world. You even, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, collected pay toilet change from a racetrack. Um, there's uh, one marketing exec in the states said um, th that was basically an, uh, a monopoly and. Um, an enterprise like that could never happen in the States. Um, what do you think? I think it's more difficult to do the way I've sort of been lucky enough to build the business. Even in Europe today, with the European Union, the way anything anti-competitive, you know, I've liked to felt, you know, that we've always been anti-competitive. I don't want competition, so I've been against. That, that's not being serious, it's supposed to be funny, but it probably is serious. Someone else said, kind of with regards to you, Bernie is a democratic dictator. He goes through the motions of democracy and then tells you what it's going to be and how it's going to happen. Uh, your thoughts? Must be a close friend. <laughs> um, what, what do you think uh, allowed you to maintain control for as long as you did? Well, I've managed to deliver. You know, the old, the people that ran uh, the company before, uh, CVC, the chairman then really owned most of a lot of the shares in CVC. I mean, he allowed me to do whatever I wanted to do, which may have been wrong, but that's what happened. And I managed to produce quite a lot of money for the company, so they were happy. I mean, there are com people that bought companies and sold them, that's what their job was. So I was producing for them, so they were happy. You've had, obviously, a tremendous amount of success um, over the years, and with that comes not only fame, but great wealth. Um, unlike many others, you've never been one to have an entourage or security, um, why not? Because I don't need it. What I do, I do because I enjoy doing it, not for the money. And money is a byproduct of what I do. And it, I'm very grateful for that. It allows me to do things that I couldn't have done if I hadn't got the money in the first place. But it wasn't something I tried to achieve. In the early days when I was a kid, I realized I had to make some money to buy things that I wanted. These days, or in the last few, 10 few years, I haven't had to. It doesn't drive me. So on the security front, though, uh, you know, some would probably argue with you know, whether or not you need that, because tell about how the uh, ad for the, the watch ad came about where you had Cuba. a black eye. Yeah. 
No, I was just getting out of the car, that's all, and somebody decided they'd like another watch. I mean, in this, but this wasn't when you were a young man either. I mean, you're already, yeah. you were already in your 80s, and yeah. I mean, what are you thinking is all this is going on? Well, I didn't think of anything because I was getting out of a car and uh, people come and that was it. So I didn't think because I was on the ground unconscious. Yeah. And then they grabbed my wife and took things from her. So these are the things that happen in a safe country. It happened in England. And I saw a photograph and I thought, should be able to make something. And I told the owners of the company, I said, you should do this and see, see what people would do for a Hubler. I said, we could never do that. I said, well, why did you try? And they did, and it caught on very well for them. Cost them nothing. I got better, so everything was fine. Your reaction upon learning uh, your helicopter pilot was the mastermind behind the uh, you know, plot to get $50 million uh, for uh, you know, kidnapping your mother-in-law? 124 million. 124 million. Euro. 124 million euro, which is a lot more dollars. Well, anyway, he was, yeah. he was a pilot that the people in Brazil, Formula One people, used. And when I went to Brazil, I used to use them when I wanted a helicopter. How did you find out your mother-in-law was taken? Firstly, uh, my wife's sister called, but then the people contacted Fabiana and told her what they wanted and how they want. Very nicely done with a whole list of how you package the money and whatever. What are you thinking when all of it's going on? Well, nothing much we can do. You know, I wanted to pay, and uh, the police said under no circumstances you can pay at all. Really, you wanted to pay, and um, did not that amount because I'm a dealer. <laughs> What were you thinking you were going to... No, I said I'll go over with a bag of cash if they want to meet the people. Mm -hmm. But they said it would never happen to do that. Did you consider going against the police and doing no. it anyways? No. Well, um, I mean, who would pay for a mother-in-law? <laughs> no comment. Um, uh, of your daughters, um, you've said before, I didn't devote as much time to them as I would have liked. I could have and should have spent more time with them. Yeah. What makes you say that? I think parents normally spend probably more time with their kids than I did. Nothing's gone wrong by doing that, but I just feel that maybe I should have done. I'm much closer now to them than I was sort of years ago. Really? Hmm. Uh, why do you think that is? Because they've grown up. We were talking earlier um, you know, about your frugal upbringing and how you said, um, you know, in, inheritance for your daughters in a way is a, a bad thing. Um, how comfortable are you with it when, you know, you learned they were spending like hundreds of millions of dollars on uh, real estate from their inheritance? Well, the money was there for them to use, up for them to use it. If it runs out, they'll have to find something else to do. I mean, did it bother you at all, or not so much? It doesn't bother me. Um, Except I know they're going to come back what and do you ask mean? if it does run out. You think so? <laughs> well, they should. 
Now, they're both in business, actually. Doing, one of my daughters doing very well with their company. But um, they're all right. How do you view marriage? <sighs> I don't know, this is one of these things you get into, I suppose, and you do the best you can when you're there. I, second wife, actually, left me because, you know, I was completely devoted to what I do and didn't, you know, for me, a holiday was three days somewhere during the weekend. So I could understand that. She got become 50 years old, reasonably well off then, and wanted to do her own life, which is right. Any preference in terms of married or not married? No, I think the best thing to do is, if you can, is try, and as I've sort of grown a lot more this way of the world, is to try and adopt a much more flexible, democratic way in marriage of going on. Have a few girlfriends. Selling Formula One. Why do you think the relationship between you and Liberty has been strained some? It was just different. CVC let me do whatever I wanted to do. Hoped I got it right. And in this case, I think with Liberty, they want to run they think the company's not been run very well, and they want to run it differently. So that's the difference. What do you think makes them think it hasn't been run very well? Because it probably not run the way they've been running companies. It's a, it's a different way altogether. I was running the company's chief executive to make as much money as I could for the company. Right. That's what I was employed to do, which is what I tried to do. And it looks to me like they're not looking as if they're trying to make money. They said I was always trying to make money overnight. Right. Um, and not looking into the future. So I think our friends at the moment say they're looking at things much longer term. Um, how surprised were you to get removed as head of Formula One after you had been asked by Liberty to stay no, on his head for three I years. I think it's good to get that straight. Donald McKenzie that sold the company said to me, if we sell to these people, will you stay for three years? With I said, well, providing I'm you know, able to continue running the company properly, yes, sure. And then I was asked by Chase to meet him one day, and he said to me, I'd like you to stand down, as I want to take that position. I understand that it's been hard for you, um, you know, no longer running Formula One. In what ways? No, it hasn't been hard at all. Um, oh, come on, not even a, a little? Yeah, I'm, when, when, I mean, that day and maybe for a month afterwards, I thought, what the hell? I want Formula One to go up, 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 up. I want it to get better. And I'm happy if things are done that I didn't do and are improving the business. I'd say, well, I should have done those. You said there were things that you would have done differently if you could have. Uh, like what? Well, we wouldn't have the technical regulations that we currently have, which cost the teams a lot of money and make it difficult for them to stay in business for a start. Probably in the last three years, 
I would try to renegotiate with the teams to give them less money and take less money from the promoters. You've said, you know, in years past that whoever succeeds you needs to be another very good used cars dealer. Um, what do you think the likelihood is that that's Chase? I think Chase, I don't know him, so it's difficult to say. I think probably he's more corporate-minded than entrepreneurial. Uh, what do you think of the job he's doing so far? Well, I don't know because they've elevated me in a very honorable position, and it's so high in the company I can't look and see what's going on. <laughs> so I don't know. What does your role entail currently? Nothing. I don't do anything particularly. Somebody in the company that's been elevated to a position, which was a bit different from when they were with me, has told a lot of the staff not to discuss things with me. So they don't, officially. How much of it all does that bother you? Well, it, it bothers me because I think uh, maybe they think what I've been doing is wrong or something. I have no idea. You know what happens in companies. They, suddenly things change and people try and cut out things for themselves a little bit. So we've got people that have got important positions which they never had. And the reason they never had them is basically because they couldn't achieve them. Lewis Hamilton, what do you like about him? I think he's the best thing we've had in Formula One for a long time. He's colorful. He gets to nearly everyone in the in the, the public, you know. People admire him as a driver, talented, and looks a bit different to most of them. Had Nico not retired after the 2016 season, what do you think the likelihood is that the two of them could have remained together on the same team, given how tense the relationship was getting? Well, I don't know. I think um, Nico had achieve what he wanted to achieve. And he'd had enough of the internal politics. What sort of politics? Things that happen in teams. Nobody wants to be considered number two. What do you like about Sebastian Vettel? Yeah, super. I mean, it depends with drivers, it depends what team they're in, basically. There's a lot of guys at the back of the grid could be at the front in the right car, and the guys are at the front if they had the cars at the back of the grid, would still be at the back of the grid. If him and Lewis Hamilton were both on the Mercedes team, who do you think wins the championship? Who would win the, got the person got the most points at the end? <laughs> now you're being political. Um, you, do you think one's a better driver than the other? No. Do I think, no. You can't tell. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Bernie Ecclestone. We traveled to Azerbaijan in the Middle East for this interview, and you can see more of our time there at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Bensinger for hours of extra content. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.